Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. There was a time I was so afraid. So scared to do what I wanted In looking back I can see all the mistakes that I made And I wish that I could talk to me And tell me I can change Don't be afraid Welcome to Blog Talk Radio Safe Recovery. This is Monica Richardson, and I am your host. Today is June 13th, 2017. I'm happy that we're going to have on one of my favorite guests, Stephen Slate. I'm going to bring him on in just a second. I just want to make a little plug for some of the upcoming work that I'm going to be doing. There is a story in the Los Angeles Daily News, and the title of it is Mainlining Money, for Southland's Fraudulent Drug Treatment Centers, Junkies, or Big Business. Uh, this was came out on Sunday, May 21st in 2017, and they are going to do, it's a three-part series. Uh, it was a front page and maybe, th- I think, three full pages really telling the story of how they're using uh, people who are um, addicted or overusing drugs and the cycle with money and fraudulent rehab and fraudulent sober living and drug testing and all that kind of stuff. So if you have a story that you want to get to me, you can find me on Facebook, Monica Richardson, or send it to makeaasafer at gmail.com. And I am going to work on getting a new song because it's starting to really bug me, my old song there. Anyway, and a plug for that, I got all of my music finally up on CD Baby and on iTunes. There's three CDs that I made. One, the last one is in 2011, which got hijacked by me making the film, The 13th Step. That's on Amazon, as most of you know. You can stream it there and watch it for free if you have Prime. And then it's it's cheap if you don't. It's $1.99 to rent, $3.99 to buy. The Vimeo version, I think, is better. It's a little bit longer. It's the director's cut. It has my story and has a lot more in it. And with all that, let's talk about Stephen. So Stephen is the author of the Clean Slate Addiction Site. He is the co-author of the St. Jude Program, the 13th edition taught at St. Jude's Retreats. He's authored articles on addiction for textbooks. He continues to work in research and in development at the Baldwin Research Institute to create the best solution for problematic substance use. And boy, do I like that word. Uh, I'm going to bring you on now. All right, so here we go. Hi, Stephen. Hi, Monica. How are you? How are you? I'm good. How are you? <clears throat> I'm good. I'm glad you like the word uh, problematic substance use. <laughs> yeah, I um, noticed that kind of that's the, that's the word that all the politicians are using too. It's a good, better word, isn't it? <laughs> it's it is. It's better. Yeah. Yeah, it is um, better. I, um, addiction, because uh, I hate that word altogether. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think it keeps us locked into one way of looking at substance use problems, you know? Um, yeah. 
I agree. Uh, labeling. It's labeling yeah. something, something that they're going to have for life. And, you know, just as you said all that, I realized that you had such a different experience than me. And you were kind yeah. of, the system actually hurt you. I mean, mine was, I went, you know, I walked, I went to meetings because I thought it was a, like a nice young support group in the 70s. But your experience was really different. And I know it, but some listeners may not. You want to just tell us a little bit of the, your background? Yeah. So um, my background is I was using a lot of drugs uh, from the age of 17, which was actually in my in, in my school that was late, or yeah. the late bloomer, senior year. Um, right. but, but from the age of 17, I was using a lot of drugs, partying a lot. And um, and I I never I didn't see myself as out of control of it until you know a few years a few years down the road where uh, people intervened and I went to get help and all they did in the system of help was try to convince me that I was out of control mm-hmm. um, and what I really needed you know to just look at was you know how much I'm, I'm getting out of this and that I'd be happier changing it. But everything is on, everything is targeted first at, you have to submit to this idea uh-huh. that you cannot control yourself, you know. And so, and I went downhill from mm-hmm. when I entered treatment. And, mm-hmm. you know, so of course, I believe it's a choice. It was all my choice. But it was really an interaction between started to think of myself as I got involved in that system, the self-image of an addict that they, you know, really just insist that you take on, I feel Mm -hmm. like really just dragged me down Mm -hmm. to where I was, you know, uh, stealing things, homeless for a little while, Ripping wow. off my family, you know, just doing all the, uh, you know, uh, all the worst of the worst of the worst. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. and so then when I and I did go to I went to methadone programs and I went to inpatient rehab, outpatient treatment, um, toxins, and you know, and I got all the psychiatric help you could get, and mm-hmm. and you know, all that kind of stuff. AA, NA, Cocaine Anonymous, and and. And then, you know, and eventually uh, St. Jude Retreats was where I went and got over my problem. And the, the message there was pretty simple, and it was what I originally believed about myself before I got wrapped up in treatment, which was that um, I was doing what I want to do. Mm-hmm. And if I explored, you know, changing it for greater happiness um, instead of fighting this disease of addiction, um, you know, that maybe I'd be happier making a change. And and then that's exactly what I discovered. And, and it has been no work for me to not be a, you know, street heroin user getting arrested constantly. I, I haven't had to do any work to, to not be that in 15 years. You know, once you've once you, <laughs> done with it. You know, I, I don't have to uh, work on that every day, you know. <laughs> yeah, right, there's no work. Once you know, you know, and, and, and I knew. So, yeah. That's such and a different approach. Uh, how many years um, of the in and out, the other stuff, before you went to St. Jude's retreats, how, how many years went on there? It was five years in and out of treatment wow. programs. From '97 yeah. until I arrived mm-hmm. at St. Jude's in 2002. Wow, where is St. Jude's Retreat for people who are listening? They're in upstate New York, and um, you know, up by like Albany, if that means anything. Most people think of New York as just New York City, um, right? But, right. But yeah, they're in upstate New York, and um, what these people at St. Jude's Retreat said was actually really amazing. Mark and my co-author, um, and I, I get some of these mixed up, 
They started around 1989. Um, he was, uh, he had, you know, sort of just gotten over his own alcohol problem and met this guy who was a researcher, Gary Brown, and, and um, he was a mathematics researcher, but he, he was an AA member, and he, and he started looking at it, and he's like, I just don't feel like, it doesn't seem like this is working for most people. You know? hmm. And surreptitiously, yeah. tracked people at AA meetings for a year. He went to the same <laughs> seven meetings every right. week. Right. Kept track of the members, the people that it was their home group or whatever, and whether they come in and say that they relapse and, not, and this, that, and he can't figure. And obviously, this wasn't a science; it was yeah. just his own curiosity because it was just like it just doesn't something doesn't seem like working right. And he figured they had about a ten percent success rate, and mm-hmm. um, you know that sounds about right. I mean, we know Lance Dodes just came out a few years ago; it was five to eight percent, right? Mm-hmm. And um, you know, so that kicks things off to where they said, you know, something must be wrong, something must be changed. Because, I mean, here we are. We were both able to quit our drinking problem. Um, let's see um, if we can do something better. And But they were believers in AA. In, in, I mean, they could, you know, you could tell yeah. them a page and line number and they could probably spit it out to you. And um, <laughs> maybe they, I should interview them sometime. That would be interesting. You you really should. You know they got an amazing story. Um, yeah. Yeah. So they they just started out and they were they they kind of did away with all of the doom and gloom and were like, look, you can. I mean, one of the big things is they said you can be recovered, and that yeah. was like sacrilege. So <laughs> they had people in AA meetings, literally challenge them to go out into the street and rumble because they <laughs> said things like, my name is Mark, I'm a recovered alcoholic. Right. That's good. That's Just good. Over that like, word. You can't, they can't say that. Go to God blasphemy, right? No. You can't yeah. say that. You have to say, I'm recovering or I'm in recovery. Mm-hmm. You have to make it into this permanent state struggle and it really puts a point on the whole thing that they conceive of you as permanently different and permanently like broken I mean I don't think we're broken at all and I yeah. think that we but Rick at that time recovered just that was radical that was radical to say that you can be recovered uh, and now of course we've grown they were originally sort of teaching out of the 12-step program, but they were teaching around so much of it, and they, and they said, God, this is so many problems here. We just need to do our own thing, and, and they started creating their own thing, and it was mm. educational, and they even fought the state for several years about their status as an educational program rather than treatment. They said, you know, we don't think it's a disease, so we're not treating anybody, and that's important. Um, oh, oh. Sorry, I'm going on and on. I get their story is kind of amazing. I mean, here we are 20 yeah, years you know later. Wow. That's, you know? I think I heard some of it from uh, um, Michelle. From Michelle? Yeah, I think when we first spoke to her. But not all of it. I should have them on. I've had her on, but I've never had the two guys on. It, when we're done, maybe if you shoot me an email and give me their names. And I'll, and it, it would be good because it's probably been years. I just want to – I'm revisiting everybody who I – some new people and stuff to uh, have them on the show again. Yeah. Um, you know, as you were you were talking uh, also about the broken thing, so the really sad yeah. part is that I had done a lot of, I mean, I was absent in all those years and uh, liked it. It was easy for me. Um, I'm not absent anymore. I don't believe in any of that. But um, the broken thing really got in there, and I had done a lot of therapy in the mid-'90s after I had my first son, and then did some more like really good therapy and you know it was getting better and better but I would have these bouts like it would seem like maybe once every two or three years where I would like that whole thing about being broken and and I took yeah. this um, through a woman in my actually my last meeting I used to go to in, invited a group of us to take this TM class and the call was called quantum meditation and the guy's been teaching like TM for 25 30 years and I'm sitting in this group of AA women so everybody's got like 20 plus years and he says you're not broken mm-hmm. 
um, we've done a study, and even if you've been molested as a child, or even if you, you know, calling yourself uh, alcoholic or addict, uh, that is not true. The brain doesn't know that if you've been not doing that behavior, you are not broken anywhere. And they did like, you know, thirty, they said thirty million dollars worth of study at UCLA mm-hmm. back then, like the seventies and eighties, to prove that. Um, and then how meditation helped, right? Simple meditation not religious meditation. That's why they switched it from TM to just quantum. And um, I, I was like fixed. I was instantaneous, instantaneously like a combustion of like sheer joy that, that was utter bullshit that I believed. And never yeah. again, never again did I ever, even when I had some severe, so a couple of health issues that came up after I left AA, did I ever look at myself I said, I'm not broken. And um, I think it's a big component to tell teenagers who are coming in, and I bet you have a lot of opinions on the whole opiate thing going on now. You you could be the poster poster guy <laughs> on that. I want to talk about the TED Talks for a second. So that was a pretty wonderful oh, yeah. thing that happened. Yeah, you want to talk about how that happened and just talk about the TED Talk that you did. Yeah, okay. So how it came about was uh, there was a guy uh, reading – my website, reading my blogs, you know, articles about what I, you know, this different take on addiction. And he was having a pretty bad, uh, you know, drinking problem and mm-hmm. really upsetting his family and different things. And um, and he, I think he had gone to see, gone to an AA meeting or, or a counselor, I kind of forget. He was just like, that doesn't make sense. And he started reading my stuff, and he was like, this makes sense. Mm-hmm. And um, he either quit or cut back his drinking a lot. He got it um, so that he, um, you know, was, was not causing a problem anymore. And mm-hmm. uh, he was just super impressed, and um, he happened to be uh, taking part in organizing a TEDx talk. And wow. <laughs> uh, suggested me as a speaker, you know. Wow. Um, yeah. So. That's uh, a good story. The, and, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's how. The, and I got great response on it. I, I tell you, I struggle trying to write it because I want to tell it, and, and I want to back it all up with data, and then the maximum amount of time you get to do is 18 minutes. And mm-hmm. like, and and you know, drop so many bombs every time I talk about this that like it's a lot to back up. And right. um, I struggled really hard to write it, but it did it. Got a good response. Um, there were you know, and, and part of the the theme out of the gate with the really you know radical statement, which was that treatment doesn't cure addicts; it creates mm-hmm. addicts. And mm-hmm. um, I had a couple of uh, an older couple that were both um, social workers, and one uh, for you know thirty or more years. They said, and 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 they came up to me afterwards. They said, one of them said, uh, well, first they both agreed. They were very impressed. But then the other one said, you know, I was sending people to AA forever, and these twelve step thing and. You know, now that you mention it, they were always coming back worse off, you know? Uh, uh. And and you just don't know. You own the thing and you think, well, addiction is really hard. You know, you never put two and two together that, like, maybe just that thing there is not, maybe that's not the right way to look at this and it's just not working, <laughs> you know? Right. Maybe, but, you know, until you know, until somebody sort of puts all those pieces together for you. You know, we all just assume it's this way because everybody said it's this way forever. Yeah, that's a... But I get, I got really a good reaction on that. Um, I get emails all was, the time. People say that it describes their story and whatnot. Well, we're listening to... this. I have Stephen Slate on, uh, if you're out there just tuning in now. Uh, Stephen works in New York uh, you have an outpatient, like a clinic, or not a clinic, but you have an office in New York City, don't you? Yeah, I have an office. I'm sitting in it right now. Um, <laughs> and um, 
it's really this is really important to know. It's not outpatient and um, it's not treatment at all. Um, but I want to make sure that the people listening do right. because it's a misconception. Um, some people come to our retreat and it says all over the website, this is a non-treatment program, you know, mm-hmm. and they think, well, this is a lighter version of treatment, you know, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. this is an alternative treatment. And, you know, if, you know, when we present addiction is not a disease, you know, it says that. Right. If it's not a disease, you can't treat it. It's just kind of a sham to, to mm-hmm. say that, you know, I mean, certainly you can have, under the guise of treatment, you can have helpful conversations with people, um, you know, and whatever else, what have you. Um, but the idea of treating addiction, I mean, have you ever noticed that it's always so indirect? And what you know, and what I mean by that is, uh, you know, there never, there's never much focus on the actual drug and alcohol use in a way. And, mm-hmm. and obviously, there is to a certain degree, but do yoga. You know what I mean? And, and or <laughs> go help other yeah. alcoholics. You, you know what I mean? Um, Work with it's horses. It's always these. Say that again? Work with the horses. You know, like the horse, the joke that Lance Doty said in my film in the earlier versions. Um, I, I think you're right. I, I think that these groups that I'm on, I'm in a lot of groups now on Facebook and learned a lot about other people's issues. And you see people yeah. talk about struggling and people using harm reduction, the fact that nobody knew about naltrexone. Well, that's all over social media now. Um and uh, but so what do you do? So if somebody does come and say you know I or somebody brings their kid because that might happen, and the kid hates AA and they find out about you and then you 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 sit and work with them right? I mean and so what? I mean I know kind of your approach, but can you tell the listener what the approach is then there? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so in in the new in the new book that I'm using now with my uh, students over Skype and in my author in New York, um, it's in two basic parts. And it's educational. They're going to get two chapters, you know, and people are tearing through this just fine. Um, They get two chapters per class that they're going to read, and then they're just going to come in and we're going to discuss and say, "Do do you get these ideas? And let me give you more examples. Let me tell you more about the research that's behind it. And let me just pass along information to you that will make you an educated chooser here. Mm-hmm. And, um, but like I said, the, the, the book is in two basic parts. The first part deals with the model of addiction. And what we say is, look, um, you don't have an addiction. You don't have a loss of control. Um, you don't, you're not compelled to do this. Uh, and you don't need to recover from an addiction if you don't have an addiction. Um, what you have is a strong preference for substance use, based mm-hmm. on pretty basic reasons, you know, um, pleasure and fun, socializing. Some people think that they get relief and anxiety relief out of substances. Um, some people think they need it to, you know, lower their inhibitions and be more social, what mm-hmm. have you. There's a lot of things that people think they get out of substance use, reasons that they like it, you know, and they like it. And they think that it serves them better than anything else that they have available to them. Um, so we replace the idea that you're addicted 
with the idea that you've built up a learned preference for heavy mm-hmm. substance use. And habit is involved in that to a certain degree. And um, we, we end up replacing the one theory with the other and change the goal from recovery or from abstinence. I just have to quit, right? People do this. Right, right. People do this thing where they say, I just have to quit. Everything's going bad. And, you know, we change it from that. You know, I call that the gun to the head method, where you Mm -hmm. basically are putting a virtual gun to your own head and saying, Mm -hmm. don't use or else you'll get arrested or else you'll piss off your family or else, you know, if you have one drink, you're going to have a million or else, you know. And we don't do this or else. And we threaten ourselves and we make demands of ourselves. And um, so the second section of the book is all about shifting from this deterrence strategy, turn myself from using more, uh, by remembering all the bad things that are going to happen. How many times do people say that? And they sit there beating themselves up saying, you know, don't drink, you know, I'm was working with somebody last year who had cirrhosis who'd been sitting there for a decade saying to himself, you know, don't drink because you're going to kill yourself. And, you know, it wasn't working. He's still drinking. You know, we drink because we find benefit in it. And so, you know, and we got to get away from that. So the second half of the book is about getting away from that strategy of either fighting an addiction or deterring yourself, and it's getting into reanalyzing your options. And this is very important, right? Because when I say a lot of the time in the past, um, people have taken that to mean directly replacing drinking with something else, you know, and, and a good, good, and that is not what I mean. And a good example of that is like, oh, I'm going to start going to the gym instead of drinking. And, you know, I think that's helpful for people in some sort of way. But if you really get down to it, it, it's not practical and it sort of misses the point. And there's probably something else going on why people succeed in doing that. But, for example, if, if I replace going to the gym, go drinking with going to the gym, am I going to drop and do push-ups every time I think about having a drink? You know? Yeah, yeah. It's, right. It's, 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 it's missing the mark a little bit. Think about your options more. It's not about directly replacing drugs or alcohol with something else. It's about saying, look, I can continue to use the way that I have. We'll call that problematic use Um, or I could adjust that in some way either using less using less often using a legal drug um, using a less dangerous drug Um, Mm -hmm. you know there's lots of different ways that people could adjust their stuff or only using for fun I'm going to stop relying on this for stress it's not helping with that there's a lot of ways that people can adjust but you know it's you look at continued heavy use, adjusted substance use, or you look all the way at abstinence as well. What if I just didn't use at all? Really look at those options and figure out, do I see more benefit in these other options? Mm-hmm. And I know that sounds really simplistic, pretty mm-hmm. basic, but what most people think about when they struggle to quit is about the cost of heavy substance use. And so Mm -hmm. they're not attracting themselves to something else. They're still trying to just deter themselves from something that they still essentially prefer. You know, if you're still looking at heavy substance use, you say it's just what I need to be able to deal with life and have any semblance of happiness. If you still see alcohol that way, then you'll pay any price for it you know, including destroying your liver and and whatever else. Um, But if you see change as genuinely happy or not just that, oh, you know, 10 years from now I won't die from 
you know, liver problem, but you also see it as like not, you know, long term it's going to be better for me, and today it's going to be I'm I'm going to be happier. If you can come to see the change in that way, then it ends up easy to change. You know, it's there's there's no work at doing what you're convinced is genuinely going to make you happier. It's like I don't have to work to not use um, my old Dell desktop computer. The thing just sucks. I don't want it anymore, you know. Like I have a nice little MacBook Air that I love. Um, And, you know, so it's about reassessing the options. And we go into and and we bring information into it that anybody's ever really used in, um, in a in in a method of health before, which is uh, we challenge all the assumptions about the benefits of drugs and alcohol, like that heroin brings euphoria that's greater than any other natural reward. Have you heard that kind of language? Like better than yes. natural reward? No, no, I, I think I've... This... yeah. Well, not only talk, sorry, talking to you, you know. That's it. Like I think it is new, and there's no money in it, Stephen. Like there's, they could have, they've made this into. I mean, I thought it was a ten million dollar industry when I began the film, and now I know it's a billion dollar industry. And actually, I'm working on something now that will expose, you know, the rehab and sober living and the fraud and that. But it's yeah. kind of money racket is disgusting, and they want and the people who are in it controlling and telling these young people, which is. Another part that you know we could talk about it if we have any time at the end about my my I guess uh, you know this whole thing about it being um, I hate even saying the word so I'm not going to say it but that heroin and opiates is at this level of blah 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 and I'm like well what's causing it it isn't just a drug you have the whole AA and NA component you have all the rehab component of what people are told when they get you have the families. Yeah. You know, yeah. uh, the families are all brainwashed so that even if it's just a person goes to these meetings, the family's like, you can't, like, if you come back from seeing, you, you know, what, you're going you're gonna to drink or you're going to use some drugs again? What, what are they telling? You know what I mean? There's that whole um, yeah. you know, throwing their kids out in the street. So uh, on that, I want to ask you. And you know what the family a, does when they do that yeah. is they flat in the cost so that shooting up heroin again costs the same as, smoking a joint or having a drink, right? Once you put in the zero tolerance policy yeah. to the user, yeah. either way, they're getting thrown out on the street. Well, you we might as well shoot up a bunch of heroin then, right? Mm-hmm. If not, <laughs> they flatten right. the cost of all of it. Sorry. But yeah, you're, no, you're, it's you're really saying. sad. It's, it's really sad. So we're talking to Stephen Slade, and Stephen is out of New York City. Uh, he works with the um, the Baldwin Institute and is in connection with uh, St. Jude's retreat, retreat, which is upstate New York. If you're just tuning in, um, we're doing an hour show here today with Stephen, my good friend. I remember meeting you the first time I met you. Um, mm-hmm. I met somewhere near the Trump Tower. Is that right? Did you take me into the Trump Tower? <laughs> no, we didn't go to the Trump Tower. I think, but yeah, we met over in that part of town, and then we were going to go to Smith and Walensky, but we ended up at Italy. Right. Oh my God! That's yes, right. You took me to Italy, which I had never been. That was really, yeah. really fun. Yeah. And um, you know, one of the things too that was uh, such a great experience with the few people that I met is that I had been, you know, absent. And I guess at that point for 37 years, and I was gone from AA for uh, I was in AA for 36. So right, I was out like a year and a couple months. And um, and I said to you, you know, I don't like. I want to taste it again you know what I mean and it wasn't like people are really interesting when they talk about alcohol and I was just like I know I didn't want to get drunk like no I you know I just wanted to see what it tastes like and I realized like I was le- I left this thing which that's why I tend to want to call it a cult AA now because it's like if you leave something and you realize your mind is you're free and all the language that began to change like and I really try to say problematic use all the time when I say it, when I'm talking to somebody else. Um, but uh, back back to you, back to you. Let's. Um, but it was a wonderful time, what you shared with me on the corner. I remember we were standing there on the sidewalk. And, uh, you know, each – because there were people that I talked to about it in the beginning who were very fear-based. And I made a decision mm-hmm. then I would never talk about it with those people again. 
Um, yeah. Unless once I was strong and had tried to I had tried some alcohol, and now we're like how many years out? That it was twelve. It's seventeen. So now it'll be five years, and it turns out I'm still a very um, average Joe drinker, which I like it like uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and I'd like one, two, or three glasses. Three is usually too much. Two is enough, but you know what I mean. And I have my yeah, my my own um, inner thing. But I do the the thing about um, I think healthy habits. I've developed many over the years, and I have seen some young people around me that I know that like some of them go back to school, like they finally found a purpose mm-hmm. in life and found. Um, a trade or a school that they loved and were passionate about and found a job, and but they don't go the yeah. abstinent route. They're not like, thank God, I'm. Uh, I don't see that as the answer, you know, to people. And um, but anyway, it's really. Go ahead. You were. I well, interrupted you with that train of thought I had. No, no, that's really good. Um, that's really good stuff. Yeah, the the requirement of abstinence, and this is, you know, in the, in the new book, we, we challenge people right from the beginning and we say, look, we're going to talk about moderation. And if that scares you, um, then, you know, you really need to think about this, right? Because the moderate, the reason that they say abstinence is, is necessary and that, and that people disease model and allergy model and all of this to begin with is because it's really they don't trust the uh, substance use to be able to change to, be, to make a different decision and what people into deciding to abstain they say, look, either you abstain forever or it's jails, institutions, and death. And that's the gun to the head that I was yeah, talking yeah. about, right? Mm-hmm, They're mm-hmm. just trying to deter people. Mm-hmm. And, in fact, people are wanting to use drugs and alcohol because they see it as having some benefit to them sufficient enough to, like, pay the cost. So, um if they see that they'd be happier doing it differently, they'll change easily. But that's a tough conversation to have with people. People haven't understood where heavy substance use comes from. They've categorized it as this enigma of a disease, this thing called an addiction. But it's just like every other choice. It's like when people fall in love and all they want to do is be with this other person. It's like when people just love their career so much and want to do nothing but that or, and, and, you know, all sorts of things we can talk about. And just like any of those other things, you can go disenchanted with it. You can move on from it. You can like other things more, but they try to short, and what they end up doing is short circuiting a person's natural process of growing and discovering that a change mm-hmm. would actually be satisfying mm-hmm. them. They try to short circuit that, step in and say, look, you are an alcoholic. That means you can't touch a single drop. So it's either <laughs> have a single drop and die or right. don't. And they, you just try to make the decision for a person. And yeah, then you have really a person some, oh. out there yeah. acting on a conclusion that they did not reach by their own judgment. It's like if your kid comes home and says, Mom, help me with the division with my math homework, and you just give them the answers to the long division problems. You do them in your head by now because you've, you've done them, tell right. them the answers, and then when it comes time for the test, you can't do it. You know, And that's what we're, we're trying to just impose the conclusion on somebody that you should never drink again. And then when they go out there in the world and they face drinking situations, they really want to drink and they really want to drink a lot because they've never thought through the benefits of changing the drinking. And I know this is, I know I'm going to, there's going to be people pissed off hearing me say this because they think, you know, I know I, I get the reactions and they are like, you don't think I want to stop? You know, I don't want to be pissing off my husband and I don't want to be doing this and I don't want to be in. Yeah, right. but. You know, I, I, I think you still don't see it, quitting as genuinely happier. I mean, people will tell me in one breath, 
I hate this and I don't like it at all. And I say, okay, well, why don't you just stop? Well, my life sucks and I would be miserable without it. So you're saying your life is better with it, essentially. You know, that's the way you see it right now. So you're saying you do like it. It's a, it's a really, it's a really weird psychological thing where, you know, there's so much shame around drug and alcohol use that um, people jump to the conclusion and they think they go by, well, I'm not supposed to like getting trashed, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so therefore I don't like it. But, you know, if you're doing it, you like it. I hate to say it, even if you hate it the next day, you like it yeah. for a few hours. I think Americans really, you know, we're really hung up here, and I think Prohibition did it. I don't think it was as bad, you know, I mean, not the history, but reading Gabriel Glaser's book um, and learning all the other history. But one of the things that I really found interesting as I got to know about SMART and I think about moderation tools in some of the books, maybe harm reduction is that T where on one side you write um, the, the, the pros of drinking, and the cons mm-hmm. and the bad of non-drinking, but then the pros of drinking. Okay, wait. No, the pro the pro of abstinence, right? Of not, but and then the yeah. bad part about it, the good part about drinking, and the bad part. And and I was like, remember when I was first listening to somebody talk about that and saying, well, wow, that's really interesting. You're engaging the person who's got a you know an issue with alcohol or drugs to actually calmly and sanely talk about what are the good things about it, right? And what yeah. are the bad things yeah. about it without, like, you know, that it's a, the demon drug. Oh, God, do I hurt the word demon? And I will, like, stop people and say, come on, let's, let's move on from calling it a demon, right? And then yeah. Um, yeah. The, the demon drug. And then, uh, you know, to have people talk about it in a really sane way where that's what you're doing. And I believe, I, I don't know if it's in a smart workbook, but I know that I have seen this and in you know different uh, programs that are using moderation uh, but I also think that there is room for something that is completely new and different you know I do think that that these are the programs that are like smart recovery and that moderation management um, harm reduction is more of a it's a platform there's some meetings right um, that uh, to look at it I, I'm with you because I see yeah, to be, what the the dogmatic twelve-step, uh, you know, ideology has done to this generation, and I'll just say one more quick thing that really upsets me is when did Americans like become so weak? Like when? What what generation was it? The uh, Generation X, where you were a like there was this level of this type of telling your children, like you know, uh, helicopter parenting, you know. Um, my sons, you yeah, know, they said yeah. that's the name of that, and that where parents didn't say to the kids, uh, you know, you go out and like Stanton Peel says is one of his books, the way I was treated, um, don't come back till sun up, sundown. I mean, you know, like get out yeah, of here and yeah. come back. And we were out, thirteen-year-olds with our bikes, and I, I rode my bike from like northern Manhattan in, up into Van Cortlandt Park, and you know, 238th Street, whatever it was. No, we, we had mm-hmm. no helmets on. We rode all over the street. Yeah. None of us ever fell off our bike. None of us ever hit our heads riding a bike yeah. and hurt our heads. Nobody hit us in the car. And, uh, you know, and now today's world, you know, you can't, you know, they're going to give me a $500 ticket because my kid didn't have a helmet on, you know, when he was little. And I was like, what? You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I never wore helmets. I was a kid either. I, um, I have to wear them if I go skiing. Well, it's been now been a few years, but if I go skiing with my nephews, I have to wear the helmet <laughs> because no, I, 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 I wear helmets wear now. Like if I'm going to, I'm going to ride a yeah. bike in LA. Trust me, I'm wearing a helmet. <laughs> yeah, um, go on and on about that forever. I think, um, but I, I really like what you were saying about um, not being afraid to look at the benefit. And mm-hmm. and one of the great things is, you know, so we, we talk about that. We engage people on that level. Say what's, I mean, part of the thing is uh, the high gets boring, and I hate to see people who have been sober forever and lost after it because, it, you know, um, things get boring over time, you know. I, I had right. to take a bunch right. of Percocets after my, um, and I talked about that in the, in the 
TED Talk. And, and you know, I noticed the feeling after, after my surgery. I, I had to take Percocets last April. Yeah. And a bunch of them, like a lot of them. I had to take a dozen a day for about two weeks and then, and then wow. a few more for about another week. And uh, like I noticed the feeling. I recognize it as being a lot like uh, heroin when I used to do that. But it also is just not thrilling and not a feeling I wanted. I wanted to be like, again, you know, I don't know, like a roller coaster gives you a head rush, like to get some heroin. Right, I mean, it's, right. It's like, it's it's silly, you know, like it's fun at a certain time, place, and period in life, and then it's not in others. But people have this idea that it's just, oh, the best thing ever, and they only reinforce that in rehab, you know, and they go on and on about, oh, you got to get away from instant gratification and this and that. I mean, that kind of tends to put you in the position of becoming a nun or a monk or something. Uh, right, everybody right. Everybody instant gratification every day in their lives. Um but, yeah, I think not being afraid to talk about liking it and what are the benefits. Because then you can actually challenge those benefits. And you can challenge the idea that it's a stress reliever. Alcohol raises your blood pressure. That's one of the physical symptoms of stress. You know, and yet everybody says, well, I need alcohol for my stress. Really? You know, um, if you get I, – I always do this with people. I say, uh, okay, so imagine you're stressed out. These are people who believe – they really need alcohol for their stress. Right. Uh, you're really stressed out about something. You go to the bar, you have four or five drinks, and you're not thinking about your problems anymore. Stress relief, right? You get in your car, you start driving, and um, top lights come out behind. You know, are you going to be stressed out in that moment? You know, pretty much everybody says, hell yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, we've been in situations where we're on our drive, you know, like, uh, I've definitely been in situations fully loaded up on heroin and pulled over by the cops. And I'll tell you, I'm very stressed out. You know? <laughs> I, and I'm very stressed out at uh, 21 when I was first, or 22. I guess it was 22, yeah. 21, I forgot. When I first was using needles and I shot up a bunch, I fell asleep on my mom's and not fell asleep, I nodded out on my mother's couch and my packet with my work, with the with the needles and all the stuff fell out and was on the floor next to me. I wake up to my mom screaming a few minutes later. Uh, and I'm fully loaded up I, on a ton of heroin. I oh. was stressed out. Mm. It doesn't. It provides a distraction. And when people do something like they go fishing and they forget about their problems, let's say, Nobody says, nobody thinks there's a magical uh, ingredient in fishing poles that's absorbed through your skin and takes away your stress. No, no, no. You know exactly what it is. It's just, I'm deciding to put my problems aside for the day while I go do this. That is exactly what's happening with drugs and alcohol. They do not magically, pharmacologically take away anybody's mm. stress. So I, oh, that's, you know, that's really interesting. This, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, on that, on that note. Based on that. Yes, yes. Can we talk about um, that that piece that you wrote? And I really liked it where you talked about like all the and you just kind of started to touch on it about the brain changing from you know uh, just like uh, the different things that can change your brain. And you, you mentioned going on a roller coaster. I mean, this is a really <laughs> simple example. But when I go get my nails done, and I've been going to the same place for 25 years, when I walk mm-hmm. in there and I sit down, I already start to feel completely relaxed because I know I'm going to put my feet yeah. in that warm water. She's going to rub my feet and make me feel like heaven. And it's a little mm-hmm. pampering of 40. Like I, I, I turn my phone off. I never talk of like once, you know, I won't talk to people on the phone. I don't really talk to people in the store. I just go there for this great experience. And I've been doing it for so my brain knows, Oh, here we are. Oh, relax, relax. You know? Yeah. And That's I a great also, example. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you did a whole long piece on, I'm at your site now, thecleanslate.org, uh, if you're out there listening. And you did, um, where is that one? The article, well, you you know what you've written, so I don't have to tell you. But you can just talk about the different things where you were talking about the brain, that it's not a brain disease, and what changes the brain and what doesn't change the brain. Yeah, you talk about that, juggling. If you, there was a study where if people juggle for six, um, if, you, if you practice uh, thinking about playing uh, the piano, 
it'll change your brain. There's one about taxi drivers. Learning to drive a taxi, the longer you do it, the bigger the hippocampus gets in the brain. The, the fact of brain changes in the brain themselves don't, you know, that doesn't prove that there's a disease. You're just seeing the correlates of, you know, it's like, um, it's like if somebody started going to the gym and getting big muscles, you would say, oh, well, you measure their muscles and you say, oh, muscles cause people to go to the gym. Well, is, is that true? <laughs> or does going to the gym cause their muscles to grow? <laughs> you know, um, and are they now going to punch people involuntarily because they've done that and they've grown muscles? Uh, it's, it's, it's all a bit silly because we know that at the height of people's brains being changed, uh, they still quit all the time, and that's some of the, right. you know that's why some of the most powerful at at St. Jude Retreat, some of the most powerful information we've ever given out, telling people, look, most people get over this without help. They 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 quit and they get over it, you know, permanently. And there's a ton of data on this. Um, right, right. And really, you know, what I I what I see us doing with the the freedom model is setting people free from the trap of addiction and recovery ideology. It's toxic. It, it, it's toxic crap. It's, it's a way of portraying the problem that it is just inherently wrong and mm-hmm. judgmental. It is inherently judgmental because you're coming into somebody else's life and saying it's normally how it, you know, goes somebody else, intervening and saying, you shouldn't be drinking that way. You shouldn't be using drugs that way. And can't convince you not to. I'm going to call this a disease. That's, that's essentially what has happened here. I'm going to label you as mentally ill. Same way they did that to women who wanted to vote. Um, the same way they did it to homosexuals. Um, mm-hmm. it, the same way, you know, it, it's been, it, the whole mental health field has been used for ages to uh, call people uh, to control their behavior without, you know, to have cover for controlling it and say, well, your behavior is a mental illness and you need to so be in our care. And I know that sounds a little crazy, but. But it's I mean, just so crazy. But, I mean, it, why is, so here's the deal that there was a guy, you should be on The Doctors, like, you know, that show uh, on the TV, The Doctors, because there, there was a guy who is, all he has is he, I mean, he's a stepper. You know, he's a stepper of like 30-something years, and he's like has all these rehabs and stuff out in Santa Clarita. And um, he was on the doctors talking about, you know, the opiate, you know, the the opiate, ha, la, la. But, you know, I mean, I, maybe I'll suggest you, but I'm, I'm here on the National Institute on Drug Abuse and Nora Valco on Addiction, <laughs> a Disease of Free Will. Yeah. There is no fucking disease of free will that's so this is a woman we have a doctor is she a medical doctor or is she a psychiatrist a phd doctor i don't care what she is like she gave a talk i already watched this for the 168th annual meeting of the american psychiatric association in toronto you and i need to be the talkers there not her (laughs) <laughs> yeah, like, well, I'm with you. Yeah, I want to. She be is really. Yeah. Have you read her stuff? I mean, do you know that like this is the person that is running NIDA? Oh yeah, yeah. And I've, I, I've read all her stuff. I've seen all her all her appearances on 60 Minutes and you name it. I mean, she's been all over the place for years, and she's a neuroscientist, and she comes from the, the ideology of you know um, everything can be traced back something in the brain and uh, so she's going to see what she wants to see and you, you, you want to know uh, you know and she's sincere though by the way everybody is sincere I really believe wholeheartedly obviously there's some hucksters out there but I think 99% of the people in AA and the rehab and all of it they're sincere they really believe what they're selling you know and I, I disagree with them though I think that their methods are wrong Um one of the big things you heard about cocaine forever, right? Like they would always show you, they stick somebody in the brain scan machine and they show them a picture of like a rolled up $20 bill. They show them Coke on a mirror, you know, they show them these pictures and then they scan their brain and they say, look, when we show them this picture, this part of the brain goes nuts. 
and that's because they're addicted, right? And, and we just showed them this too, and it did a study. This just came out mm-hmm. um, months ago where they did the same thing with, uh, with recreational cocaine users. And, you know, you got to know most, like the vast majority of cocaine users are recreational. It's, it's probably one of the lowest rates of where people become, you know, quote-unquote addicted to it. But uh, they found the same exact response in the brain with recreational cocaine users. And I guess nobody ever thought to look at this before. But as long as they were only looking at the brains of people they considered addicts, they said, oh, well, this is what causes the addiction. But if it's going on in people that are not addicted, then it's not the cause of the addiction. You know what I mean? It's it's a response that, you know, they see something that they're interested in and you have a response. And you can look up people to whatever they're into and look at their brain you'll see a, a response of some kind. It doesn't mean anything. But when you come at it from a certain perspective, you say, aha, here's the evidence of the brain disease. Um, but as soon as you widen your view and you see, well, it happens in people that certainly don't seem like they're out of control. Well, uh, I don't know. It's still, I, I, I think that it's really refreshing. That's why I'm, you know, happy to hear that you got the TED Talk and this book is written. I remember getting uh, Jeff Foote's book, Beyond Addiction, and I, when I found it, I was mm-hmm. like, I wish I needed this book like a year ago. You know, I think his book came out like a year and a half ago, and he's like, well, it didn't exist. You know, it didn't exist. Yeah. And neither did Lance Doty's books. And these books, especially these non-12-step books, are uh, newer. Um, certain people have been around a long time, but this is a new wave of it. And I think it's really, really important. But the TED Talk is a, is a big one, and as well as finishing this book, as well as all the work and the writing that you have on your blog, because it's really well thought out. And I mean, I read it, and I'm like, okay, I've got to sit here and you know really take my time here. And um, it's very, mm-hmm. it's like you know you went to school to learn how to write it. You know what I mean? It isn't just to throw it up there on the blog, a couple paragraphs, and, and then you're done. Like it's really. Seriously, no, I, well, I'm used to getting attacked all day long, so I <laughs> so I have to really try hard like to defend against all those things. It's amazing the things people hear that you didn't say. But um Right. Well I yeah. think that's what you, you finally though, I did notice I did take a look at the blog uh recently that you have more defenders there than ever. Like there was a time where you were just the lone yeah. the lone defender of what you, you were what. saying. Yeah, yeah. It was a, yeah. Um, and people, I get email. Oh my God, that's what happened to me. That's exactly how I, you know, went along. And so, you know, more and more people are catching on. I, well, what I want to leave you with is that the the book that we're going to be coming out with, and that people can use if they sign up for our classes at Skype uh, right now or in my, like they're in New York. It's so radical. It's about not seeing yourself as addicted at all or anybody as addicted. It's not just that, oh, well, some people are. No, nobody is. It's really about seeing it that way and that you do not have a disease to beat, to work Mm -hmm. against, or you just have a choice to make. And we go into great depth with that. Great, great depth, and it's really radical. It is not a treatment at all, um, and it's just informing people, and everybody's already – everybody changes. I attributed right. it to the St. Jude retreat at one point, and they said, no, 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 we didn't – don't thank us. We didn't do it. And I was you like, what? It. What are you talking They were like, you did it. It's just you. You were committed to change, and you did. That's it. And that was one of the hardest lessons for me to get. We get hung up on was – do it like I did. You've got to go to meetings like I did or help other alcoholics like I did or right. change your diet like I No, no, no. It's just about figuring out what you really want. And while you're working on recovery, fighting a addiction, being in treatment, going to meetings, these are all distractions from just answering the question. Do right. I really We ran out of I time. We are, I can, oh, sorry. We are, sorry. We are out of time. We are all finished. I want to thank you, Stephen. We'll have you on again. Uh, 
let me know if I don't, you know, reach out to you when the book comes out or if you have any more interesting things to tell me to be on the show. It was a pleasure. So this was Stephen Slate, and you can find him at the cleanslate.org on the Internet and at the Baldwin Institute in New York City. I am Monica Richardson, and I am your host, and we'll see you not next week. We'll see you the week after. Everybody, have a have a good night, Stephen. Have a good day, everybody. Thank you. We'll, see you. we'll see you again soon. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.